we'll go ahead uh, encounter and turn in your Bibles to First Peter, First Peter chapter five. We've been here in First Peter for uh, a number of weeks now, a couple months, and we are uh, nearing the end. Uh, next week we'll conclude chapter five, and then we'll begin a brief mini series thinking through Advent, the Advent season. Christmas is here almost upon us. First uh, Peter chapter 5, you'll find it there at the back of the Bible, uh, pretty close to the book of Revelation. If you hit Revelation, just stick it in reverse and you'll uh, hit First Peter shortly. It's on page 1731, 1731. And as you're turning there, just want to uh, give a special shout out to uh, Derek and Tori Dice, right? They got married a couple weeks ago and... Um, Went away then on their honeymoon, and it looks like the customs officials let them back in the country. And so here they are. Uh, so be praying for Derek and Tori as they begin uh, their life together uh, as a married couple. So congratulations. Glad you're here this morning. First Peter chapter 5. Follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal... As a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time, and cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. I would say that one of our most sincere questions in suffering is the question we ask, does anyone care? You see, suffering has a way of making us feel very alone. And we often wonder if there's anyone out there who really cares about what I am going through. Of course, maybe the deeper question is this. Does God care? Does God care? Have you ever asked that question? Does God really care? Maybe you are in a season of daily asking that question. God, do you really care? Do I really matter to you? Imagine uh, being a new believer in the early church, which is to whom this letter Peter wrote. 
He wrote it to new believers who had been scattered about because of suffering and persecution. And, and Peter is sending this letter to them. And, but, and so imagine being a new believer. Let's go back maybe 2,000 or so years. You're part of a small community of growing believers, new Christians, who are beginning to feel the pressure of persecution. Again, that's one of the themes of this book is Peter's writing it to these new believers who are experiencing suffering for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of following Jesus Christ. And as a new believer 2,000 years ago in that early fledgling church with the troubles and the struggles that you might be facing for the sake of following Christ, you might even be asking the question, (laughs) what did I sign up for? You mean, you mean I, I signed up for this? To be persecuted and to suffer? You might even be wondering if anyone outside of your new network of friends, you might even be wondering if anyone even cares about you. Right? We live in this, this age that is often referred to as a connected society, right? News flashes and, and we can send text message, messages that, 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 go, that fly faster than we can even blink, it seems. And so we live in this age where, where we can reach out and, and, and we can be connected in that way. But you have to keep in mind that this is a day and age that was, did not have all of the technology like we have today of communication. And so put yourself in that fledgling church in that that group of believers who is experiencing persecution and maybe you are having this sense of does anyone even care about the suffering that we are experiencing so imagine yourself gathering with these new believers and this 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 church or this group of people and you gather one evening And as you're meeting for encouragement and prayer, a knock comes comes to the door. And you go and you open the door and there stands a courier who in his satchel, he pulls out a parchment and it has a letter from the Apostle Peter written to the new believers as a means of encouragement. It's a letter that arrives just in time that's addressing the struggles that you and these other new believers who are sitting around in that circle, in that home at that time, it's it's addressing the struggles that you're experiencing, even the disillusionment that that maybe even some of these new believers were, were, were wandering through as they tried to grow in their new faith, as they tried to be steadfast for the Lord. And think of what a relief and an encouragement it would have been for the believers. And again, like we open the book of 1 Peter and, and, and that, that idea of a letter, of it arriving to us in the form of a letter, disconnected from other people, not having the communication like we have today, we open this and we just kind of shrug our shoulders at it. And, and we forget how, like this letter would have spoken life into the readers, it, it's almost like a lifeline to them where, where they're, they're being thrown a, a rope, right? They're drowning in suffering and now Peter writes a letter to them and what do they do? They all gather around and, 
and they want to, they're leaning in and they want to hear what does the apostle Peter, the one who saw Jesus suffer, what does he have to say to us? And how might we apply this? How might we be encouraged? Peter gives them instruction. He gives them encouragement. And they're going to be reminded that they are not alone in their suffering. And these verses this morning, the big idea is this. Is that no one suffers alone when we care for each other. No one suffers alone when we care for each other. We need to read chapter 5. We need to read these verses within the context of suffering for the sake of righteousness. For being willing to be persecuted because you follow Jesus Christ. That is one of the primary reasons why Peter is writing this letter. And so we have to take that into consideration. We can't just read these verses void of that context, of that theme. In church, Peter addresses the pastors. And he speaks to the elders of the church, the church leaders, and he's going to instruct them in how they should care for the congregation. And then he's going to turn his attention there in verse 5 to the church body, to the members of the church, to these new believers. And he is going to say, here's how you are to care for one another. And then in verse 7, it gives, like when you understand this context, when you understand this theme, it gives that verse such a richer meaning and understanding when he says, cast your anxiety on the Lord. Why? Because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. Isn't that what they would have wondered? Does anyone care for me now in my suffering? Have you ever wondered that? And yet to hear the Apostle Peter says, say, yeah, you're cared for. No one suffers alone when we care for each other. Let's look here at this first point. The pastor's care for the church. Peter turns his attention to these church leaders. And I hope you have a copy of God's word open there in your lap or pulled up on a phone. It just makes it easier to follow along. In verses 1 through 4, follow along with me again as I, as I read these verses again. With, uh, kind of with an understanding of the backdrop here. He says, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. He says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. He says, not pursuing dishonest gain, but instead eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but instead being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Peter joins himself. In these verses, what we see is Peter joins himself with the other elders, the other church leaders, because Peter also is an elder. He's a leader there within the church. And it seems that Peter is likely referring to his firsthand witness of Christ's sufferings. Uh, But he also might be referring to how he too 
had exper- how he had witnessed Christ's sufferings in his own sufferings because there is that union that when we suffer for Christ, we join in Christ's sufferings as well. Right? It's true that we get a taste, a very small taste of the suffering of Christ, of Christ when we suffer for the sake of righteousness. It gives us just a little of taste, taste of what Jesus Christ, and this is such a small taste, but it's a small taste of what Christ suffered for us. And Peter in verse 1, he says, those who suffer for Christ will also one day share in the glory that is going to one day be revealed in Christ Jesus. And so Peter joins himself to that. Now we all know that it's during times of suffering that, that our hearts do need special attention, don't we? Uh, our hearts can be tempted in unique ways when we're suffering. Uh, sometimes our hearts can be tempted uh, to lean into bitterness, to grow bitter toward other people. Uh, sometimes when we experience suffering or persecution, we, begin, we become envious of those people who aren't suffering. Maybe if you're suffering, maybe you're tempted to grow angry. Sometimes in suffering or persecution, we might, uh, we might start having pity parties for ourselves. Or maybe we even experience the sense of doubt during suffering, right? These are just a few of the many unique temptations that we face when suffering. And what Peter tells these pastors is that special care must be given by the pastor to the suffering church. That it's necessary for pastors, for church leaders, to walk alongside those who are suffering and experiencing difficult seasons. He is saying it's important for pastors to sit across the table from those who are suffering and to provide a listening ear to them. He says it's important for you to be especially attentive to the person who's suffering and tend to their souls. He gives us this picture of that of a shepherd. The shepherd's task uh, that, that may come to mind is that as a shepherd, you are to feed, you are to lead, you are to guard. Uh, church, I'll, I'll, be, I'll kind of have some true revelation here, some true, true uh, I'll just share some truth here with you. I love watching my sheep eat. I do that like it there is nothing there's I'm sure there's other things that are satisfying but there's one satisfying thing that I love doing is just like after I give we're getting all these pumpkins right now people are our neighbors are dropping off and we're splitting them and those those sheep and goats will fight over these pumpkins but man there is just something very satisfying to my heart when all of my sheep and my goats are just lined up right along and they're just like all chewing <coughs> That's what it sounds like. It does. I don't know what it sounded like for you all, but it sounded like to me it sounded pretty close. But there's something very satisfying. And, And that's where I go back to where Jesus told Peter, right? It's interesting. Jesus is the one who told Peter. He said, do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? It's almost as if those, those, those three times that Peter denied Christ, Jesus is following it up and saying, I forgive you, Peter. I forgive you, Peter. I forgive you, Peter. Now go and do ministry. 
go and feed my sheep. And so it's, with, it's within that context, right? You almost wondered, as Peter's writing this, did he have that moment in mind when Jesus said, go and feed my sheep, where he says, shepherd, feed them, feed them well, guard them, watch over them, lead them. I think we also have to note here that the responsibility of a pastor is certainly given that they should care for the church they should care for them well, but th- let's also note that, that in that, there's a need of a relationship between a pastor and the people, right? These are hands-on practices. There's a great value for the pastor or the church leader. I'll even apply this to the small group, uh, group leader. There's a value in truly knowing and being known by your pastor, by the leader, You see, the pastor cares for the flock, not to have the flock and not for everyone to get happier or to feel better about the situation, but instead the pastor, like a shepherd, cares for the believer so that 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 believer might be faithful to the Lord and help that believer to become more like Christ and that they might experience that. You see, in order for the pastor to shepherd the flock, there has to be a relationship with them. And in counter church, I think that is one of the great blessings of a church like this, is that we can know one another. That you're not just a number. I mean, whether you like it or not, I know when you're not here. Right? Whether, whether you, you like it or not, We know our struggles. We know the heartaches. We know our joys. We know our victories. And that's one of the beautiful things of a church like this is that that it allows the pastor to care. Now then go on, right? Further instruction. We won't spend a whole lot more time on this, but further instruction is given then to the pastor. He says that that attention is, is given to the pastor's motivation, that the pastor should not care, should not shepherd um, because, because he has to or because he feels under compulsion to. He says, not because you must, continuing on, he says, but because you're willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. See, when a man has a pastor's heart, he loves the sheep and he serves them. Not because he has to, but because he wants to. See, true shepherds are characterized by those who are ready and willing to accept the responsibility to answer the phone in the middle of the night, to stand or sit along the bedside of someone who's struggling, to walk with church members during some of their deepest times of grief. And then he says this, that the pastor should be an example to the flock. That the pastor should be an example to the flock. That a pastor should be an example to the flock of how he cares for others during suffering. Now, let me just bring to you three pastoral examples in my life 
I typically don't look, put a lot of extra pictures up here other than the points, but I'm going to put three pictures of three pastors in my life, and I'll give you a brief overview of their lives, how I've learned from them. The one on your left is my uncle Max Warner, who entered into the presence of his Savior, I think maybe close to 10 years ago. But Pastor Max, uh, Uncle Max to me, Pastor Warner to many others, pastored Harvester Avenue Missionary Church for 27 years in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And Uncle Max continually cared for the needs of his congregation. My, my family, the extended family, uncles, aunts, cousins, and we would always go, often go, to my Uncle Max and Aunt Rachel's house for Thanksgiving or Christmas. And just about every time, as we sat down for that Thanksgiving or Christmas meal that Aunt Rachel had spent time preparing and Uncle Max too, there would be one or two people from Uncle Max's congregation who would be sitting around that table. Maybe it was a widow. Maybe it was someone uh, who, who was nearly homeless. Uncle Max and Aunt Rachel took in many fo- a number of foster kids, showing them care. It was, very, it was common that while we would be at Uncle Max's house, again, as his pastor, that the phone would ring And he would pick it up and he would go and serve someone in their hour of need. The next pastor is Pastor Warren. You've heard me talk about him, my childhood pastor. Pastor Warren and his wife Anita served on the mission field in India for 39 years. Then, after coming off the mission field in 1986, after 39 years of serving the people of India, Pastor Warren and his wife moved to Bluffton, Ohio, and served at the church I grew, with, grew up in for the next 31 years. Do the math. That's 70 years. Like, and, and, and I think about this, when, when it says not for dishonest gain, right? Like Pastor Warren isn't serving the people for dishonest gain. He served them because he loved people. Who called me on every birthday until I left for college? Pastor Warren. Who would go and visit you at the hospital? Pastor Warren. Who cared for people? Pastor Warren. When I was a young college student there in freshman, you've heard me tell this story. I asked Pastor Warren, I said, Pastor Warren, how, does, how do you become a godly man? Right? Because isn't that what everyone wants? I want to be known as a godly man. You know, let people know that I'm a really, I really mean what I believe. I want to be a godly man. I said, Pastor Warren, how do you become, no, how, how do you become a godly man? And he leaned back in his chair. He thought for a minute. He leaned forward. And he said one word, unknowingly. You just follow Jesus. And you don't care if you're known as a godly man or a godly woman. You just follow Jesus. Pastor Warren was a shepherd to the flock. And the other there on the furthest on the right is Pastor Dalton and his wife Kathleen. And honestly, I can't, I can't picture Pastor Dalton without his wife, Kathleen. 
Because along with good pastors are good, are good pastors' wives. I met Pastor Dalton 20 years ago. He came alongside Marin and I during a tender season of life. Pastor Dalton and his wife Kathleen helped to shepherd our souls, providing encouragement and instruction to us, showing us what faithfulness and ministry looks like. Pastor Dalton and, and Kathleen have, over the course of their ministry, planted six churches. A couple years ago, stepping down from the sixth church that he starts, and now he travels around helping other pastors who are struggling. And whenever I go to Pastor Dalton and I have a problem or I look to him and I have something that I'm working through, here's what he always tells me. He says, Michael, he says, here's what all, it all boils down to. He said, here's what you do as a pastor. He said, love the people and preach the word. Love the people and preach the word. See, these are my examples. All of us. Hopefully you have, you have examples too of someone, what does it look like? Because you see, these examples are going, are, are going to become very important here in the next verse, in, in verse six, or in verse five, rather. Because you see, Peter's in, in, in instructing the important role of a pastor and, and how he cares for the church family. We have to understand that the test of a pastor's leadership or his care is not measured in terms of worldly success, how big of a budget, a building, how many people are coming to the church. Peter is saying that the test of a pastor's leadership is how does the pastor serve as a shepherd to the people during suffering? And so then we see here in verse, the next one, and the next point is this, is that the churches care for each other. The churches care for each other. Why is, it, why is it important to have a good example to follow? Because notice here then in verse five, Peter continues. Again, he's writing this letter to people who are suffering. He's helping them. He's, he's letting them know that you are cared for. He says then in verse five, it says, in the same way, right? Taking the example of those pastors of those church leaders of those women who maybe who have invested ladies in, in your lives in your heart taking their example and he says then in the same way you who are younger submit yourselves to your elders and look here he says all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another why should, we, why should we clothe ourselves with humility? Well, certainly he says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. The reason why we clothe ourselves with humility is so that we might then be able to care for one another in the same way that those who serve as an example to you in that same way learn from their lives and care for each other. I think we all love the classic song, Lean on me, right? I was humming it in the bathroom. The acoustics in that bathroom earlier are wonderful. Like if you just want to sound good, just go in there in the shower and hum a song or sing it, right? Sometimes in our lives, we all have pain. We all have sorrow. But if we are wise, we know that there's Always tomorrow. Y'all, like Emmy's just singing along. I mean, she's ready to begin. And then what's the chorus say? Lean on me when you're not strong. And I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on. For it won't be long 
till I'm gonna need somebody to lean on. Thanks for picking up the harmony, uh, uh, Faye girls there. Isn't that, isn't that it though? This song resonates in our hearts. We love that song because we recognize the importance of other people in our lives. We recognize the importance of other people coming alongside us. When we're, that song begins, sometimes in our lives we all have pain. We all have sorrow. You see, it's here in verse 5 that Peter's reminding us that it's not just the pastor's job to care for other people, for the people in times of suffering. It is not the pastor's job, just the pastor's job. It is his job. But it's not only his job. Peter says, as he's, as he's again, picture it. This is what I like to picture. As these, as these suffering believers are huddled around this letter and they're reading this for the very first time, devouring it because they are starved for care. They're starved for comfort. And it's here in verse 5 that Peter reminds us, he says, all of us, in the same way, clothe yourself with humility. Right, a literal picture of clothing yourself with humility is that of, of taking a work apron or a kitchen apron and putting it on. Like some of us are going to be be clothing ourselves with an apron right here in just a few days. You're going to find yourself in the kitchen for long hours and you'll be walking around with that apron, right? When you're wearing that apron, what that t says is, is you're ready to get it. You're ready to get busy. You're ready to get to work. You don't want to get your clothes dirty. So you're, so you're clothing yourself with the apron. That's, that's what he says. He says, clothe yourselves with humility. How? Toward one another. You see, when wearing the apron of humility, as we care for each other, when wearing the apron of humility, there is no task, there is no job or means of care that is beneath us. The apron of humility equips us to be ready to care for one another. God opposes the proud because the proud are unable to care for or encourage other people because all they do is have their eyes on themselves. Yesterday, my family spent the day watching ball games, uh, basketball games of our children. In the morning, our younger three had several basketball games. Then we drove to uh, close to uh, Frankfurt Midway and, and watched our older two boys play basketball. And my dad was along uh, for the ride and, uh, and we're sitting there, like, and again, like for a long day's event, we, had, we took some snacks with us. I was kind of opening up my, one guy said I had a side hustle concession stand because I'm, I'm like toting in these bags full of snacks, you know, and I thought it would be great. I could like have a jacket filled with like pretzels and nachos and bag, you know, right, cheapa cheapa for you, half price. And I, I said, and, and so I had some peanuts there in the, in the afternoon game, we were getting there in the, in the middle afternoon game, and I had some peanuts, and my, and my dad loves eating peanuts. Like, you can go into a shop, and there's a mound of empty peanut containers. And we were, we were hitting this peanut container pretty hard during the game, and so, uh, or at least I was, and my kids. And I leaned over, I said, Dad, I said, you want some more peanuts? He said, no. 
it's not typical of my dad to turn down peanuts. I said, well, why don't you want more peanuts? He said, because then I can't clap and cheer for the boys if my hands are full of peanuts. I thought, that's it. When we're holding on to everything for ourselves, when, when, we're, when we're keeping it all close and just thinking about myself, just thinking about like feeding, stuffing my face, what it does is it keeps me from being able to serve and help other people. Like this, clothe yourself in humility. Have open hands to care for other people. What might some practical ways that we can care for other people? I think maybe the first way is that we need to ask the Lord to just give us a caring heart. Some of us need to learn what humility looks like. We need to identify ways to relieve the suffering friend of tasks that you can do. Helping them with chores around the house. There's a lot of leaves on the ground right now. Maybe you can show up and rake leaves for a suffering friend. Maybe you can, maybe they have financial needs. Maybe they've had, maybe they've been out of work for a, a period of time and, and you know that they're struggling to make ends meet. How are you going to step in and care for them, to give to them financially? Maybe it's offering to help grocery shop or running or run errands, right? This this era of DoorDash is like it, it, it does so many things to just we, we, we don't have the opportunity to serve each other like, like, like years ago because everyone just says, well, I'll just, like, I'll just do the click thing on Kroger and they'll drop it off. Right? But, but maybe there are ways that you can run errands for the person who's suffering. Maybe it's just a handwritten note of, of encouragement. I know some of you do such a wonderful job with that. Maybe it's just stopping by their house and praying with them. It can be as easy as a quick text message. Hey, I was, the Lord brought you to mind. Just want you to know I'm thinking of you and I'm praying for you. What does that do? That tells them that you care. That tells them that they're not alone. In the same way, put on the apron of humility, open your hands to them and care for them. And then in verses 6 and 7, it's like the, it's, I mean, this is where, this is where Peter then just, it's like now he's hitting the, he, he's hitting on all, all, he's hitting on all cylinders, right? He is, he's hit his stride here. In verses 6 and 7, he says, he says, humble yourselves therefore, again, there's that humility, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty right hand or mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. And there's that familiar verse. Now we understand it within the context that under the theme of suffering, cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Your pastor cares for you. Your church body cares for you. But most importantly, we want the question answered. Does God care for me? Peter tells us right here, God cares for you. Again, it's that humility. To receive God's care, we need to find ourselves in a humble state. In fact, there's a sense of urgency in this command to do this now. That we should stop fighting against the Lord in our suffering, but instead we should allow ourselves to be humbled by God. That we should be willing to set aside our own agenda for God's agenda, even if God's agenda includes 
suffering, and heartache. We need to allow God to lower our self-reliance and our tendency to gut it out on our own. And we need to learn to trust God. We need to come to realize, as Michael helped us sing earlier and the praise team did, that God sovereignly uses and allows suffering in our lives to bring humility in our hearts, ultimately to teach us to turn to God. And then Peter tells us there in verse 7, this is a familiar verse to many of us, he says this, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word cast? How many of you think fishing? Yeah, that's where my mind went, right? I'm thinking fishing, casting, right? And I can understand that idea of, right, throwing it, getting it out of here. It's, in, it's, it's, it's when we cast a line in fishing that we throw the line out into the deep, the deep lake water or along the banks of the river, right? We let it sit there for a little bit and then we reel it back in, right? The casting that we're familiar with in fishing means that even though we toss it at a distance, what do we, what do we eventually do? <laughs> we bring the dead worm back to us. Some of y'all who are good at fishing, like Adam, hopefully there's a fish on the other end, not me. I just drown worms is what my father-in-law tells me. Right? We, we cast it out there, but we bring it back in. The, the idea here is we abandon. It's, it's casting it, not having a line connected to it, but abandoning it. Putting it at God's feet. And walking away. And say Lord I trust you in that. And then Peter describes God's affection for us. Why is it that we're able to, to abandon our anxiousness? Because isn't it during suffering and heartache and persecution. When our anxiousness tends to be the highest. He says trust God with that. Right? Think about what it looks like He's to care for someone. He says God cares for you. Right, often when, when we care for someone, it, it means that, that, that a person's mind naturally drifts toward thinking about them. When we care for someone, we want to be with them. Either it's in a, a shared activity a, a activity, a hobby, a meal together, on a date with someone that we might care for, or in an evening out with them. Or maybe just hearing how they're doing, right? When you care for someone, you're eager to see them. You're eager to know them and to be known by them. Church, let these words settle on your heart. God cares for you. This sentiment is it's difficult for us to think about because we often don't think of God in these ways. But this is how God relates to you. He cares for you. And when we understand that God does care for me, when we, when we learn of his tender affection toward us, that he delights over us, then we're able to abandon our worries to him. Then we're able to tell him what we're feeling. Then we're able to share the worries of our heart. When we know that there's a caring God who hears us, then we're able to open up our hearts and be open and honest with our struggles and our temptation. 
And it's if God truly cares for us, then we know that he's not going to pull back from us or allow his loving gaze to be distracted from us. Church, maybe you're going through a hard time right now. And maybe these words are necessary for you to hear. God cares for you. God cares for you. And again, a line that you've heard me say, if you ever doubt God's care, if you ever doubt God's love for you, just look to the cross. How much does God care for me, you say? He died for you. You won't find any greater love and care than that. He died for you. And because He died for you, He has walked the road of suffering before you. Isn't that who you want leading you during difficult days, during suffering and heartache and hardship? Don't you want someone who's already walked that road? That Jesus knows the agony of physical suffering. That Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected and despised by others. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to have the world standing against you. Jesus knows what it's like to be unfairly treated. To be falsely accused of wrongdoing. Jesus knows what it's like to carry the weight of sin. Not his sin. Your sin. And my sin. And the sin of the entire world. Jesus knows what it's like to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And yet, because on the third day Jesus rose again, we can have confidence that Jesus Christ not only suffered what we might be suffering even now, but that Jesus has gained victory over that suffering. And it's because of that victory that we have confidence that God will be faithful to His promises, that God will provide for our needs in our deepest and darkest hours, that God will give us His presence when we feel alone. It's because of that victory over suffering, over sin and death, that God will hear our prayers, that He will hear our cries for help, that God will flood our hearts with His grace and His mercy at just the right time. And because He has victory over it all, it means that God will not turn us away when the suffering of this world seems to get the upper hand, but yet we find ourselves there at the doorstep of heaven and that He will welcome us in saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Come on in and enjoy. No one suffers alone when we care for each other. And let's be a church who does that well. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray now that you would take these truths 
these words, uh, these, even these illustrations to try to make and drive home various points. God, I pray that your spirit would take all of it, encourage our hearts, challenge us. Lord, I pray that you would expose sin, that we would receive your forgiveness. God, make us more like Jesus Christ through it all. And I ask this in Jesus' name.